love that song because in that song, the question, how can it be, is asked by someone who has experienced and received incredible love from someone else. And there's no one who knows love better than one of the greatest romance poets of all time, Elizabeth Barrett. If you are a literature lover, you know who she is. Um, Elizabeth Barrett started writing poetry when she was just 11 years old. And uh, throughout her life, can you hear me? Oh, there we go. Got me? She was plagued by this disease that affected her lungs, so she really wasn't able to experience the outside world around her. So most of her life, she dedicated to writing poetry. Well, when she was 34 years old, she finally published a series of her poems, and they caught the attention of another poet named Robert Browning. And one day he wrote her a letter praising her for her work, and he wrote to her, he said, I do love your work with all my heart, and I love you too. And that letter started a long-distance romance between the two of them that lasted about two years, and in total they exchanged over 500 letters with each other, 500 letters. Um, when, we, when they got married um, two years after their relationship started, um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote her husband a poem expressing how much she loved him. And I want to see if you know what this poem is. I think you know what this poem is, okay? So I'm going to say the first line of this poem, and then you're going to tell me the second line. Don't be afraid. Trust me, you know this poem. Okay, are you ready? Here is the first line of the poem. It is this. How do I love thee? And the next line, Crosswinds, is... I told you, you know it. You know it. Well, the poem, How Do I Love Thee, um, is Elizabeth Barrett Browning's best-known poem, written as this love letter to her husband. It is one of the most famous poems of all time, and it is considered one of the greatest romantic grand gestures ever in history. Okay? That's one of them. I'm going to show you a couple more. Um, did you know that the hanging, the hanging Gardens of Babylon was actually a gift that Nebuchadnezzar gave his wife, who was feeling homesick, living away from home, and so the gardens reminded her of home, and so he had them built for her as a grand gesture. Crazy, right? The Taj Mahal was built by a grief-stricken sheik who lost the love of his life, his wife, after she gave birth to their 14th child, she died in childbirth, 14 children, um, he was so grief-stricken that he built this as an elaborate tomb for her. Her name was Mahal. Taj Mahal means Mahal's tomb. And so this was his grand gesture to her. And finally, the Orlov diamond, crosswinds, 190 carats. This was given to Catherine the Great by Count Gregory Orlov as, as a wedding a proposal, a wedding invitation. Um, apparently it wasn't big enough because she rejected his invitation but kept the diamond, and she had it made into her imperial scepter. Okay, can't win them all, but she had it made into her scepter. Well, we love a good grand romantic gesture, don't we? Like for the most part, most of us love a big display or act of love, unless you're Catherine the Great. Well, I get that there are some of us out there who don't really buy into grand, rom grand romantic gestures. Like, we're just like, it's just too much. It pulls on your heartstrings. 
uh, too much. It's too dramatic. There are some people who think that maybe it's a little bit manipulative. Like if I go overboard for you, maybe you'll go feel like you have to go overboard for me um, in, in the way you feel about me. And so for some people, they don't completely buy into these grand gestures. But can we be honest about something? Even if there are parts of us that don't buy in, deep, deep down in the very depths of our souls, we still love grand gestures, don't we? We just, we love them. There is something in all of us that is drawn to these kinds of grand displays. Let's be honest, it's like the Hallmark Channel, right? It's like the Hallmark movies. Um, they're pretty cheesy and terribly acted, but they're pretty great at the same time, right? <laughs> Pretty cheesy, pretty terribly acted, but pretty great at the same time, right? As Ted Lasso says, you just have to watch him with the sound turned off. <laughs> well, there is a deep desire in all of us that wants to know that there is someone willing to risk it all as a way of expressing their love for us. You know what I always wanted? I always wanted that moment in the 80s movie, Say Anything, where John Cusack stands out outside holding up the boombox outside your window and that song by Peter Gabriel is playing in your eyes. I love this kind of grand gesture and I think that maybe you do too because we are made for this kind of radically reckless, unashamed love. You know it. I know it, and so can we all just agree that we all know it? I'm going to prove it to you. Uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1.26, it says this, God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, okay? And then jumping all the way to 1 John 4.8, we read, God is love. Well, if we are made to resemble God and God is love, then we are made to give and receive love. We are made to give and receive love. It is why there are over 8,000 competitive dating websites worldwide and over 366 million people using them to try and find someone to love. It's why there have been over 100 million love songs written since the invention of recorded music. It's why romance novels generate over $1.4 billion in revenue a year, making them the highest earning genre of fiction. I am in the wrong business, Crosslands. <laughs> and it is why Americans alone spent $21.8 billion on Valentine's Day this past year. And it's why, on average, people spend a minimum of three months' salary on engagement rings. Because as human beings, we love love. We were made to show the people we love them how much we love them, and that's why the grand gesture, why grand gestures matter, because it's a physical, visual display that someone out there loves you, and they love you enough not to just say it, but to show it and to spend three months' salary on an engagement ring. But there's a huge problem. There is a nemesis out there that is preventing you from giving and receiving the kind of love that you want. And no, no matter how much you want that boombox moment, there is something out there that is sabotaging you and it is keeping you from giving and receiving the love that you were made to have. And that is what I want to talk to you about this morning. 
You see, throughout this series, we've been looking at uh, this mystery of what happens on the cross, and we've been looking at kind of these nemesis that creep up in our lives, and, and we are looking at how Jesus conquered each one of those nemesis on the cross, those enemies. Like that first week, we looked at how Jesus' death overcame our sin and the shame that um, comes when we sin and how Jesus conquered that on the cross. The second week, we saw that there was this enemy out there, we call him Satan, that, that works to sabotage our lives and that Jesus defeated that enemy on the cross. And last week, we saw that Jesus' death on the cross paid in full the debt, the debt that we owe because of our sin. Jesus conquered that too. Well, this week, I want to show you this last thing that Jesus defeated on the cross, this last nemesis that he tackled head on. And it is not something that exists out there in the world. It is something that exists deep inside of you. It's something that exists internally, and it is destroying your ability to give and receive love. And there is no escaping it. There's no escaping it because we all have it in one way, shape, or form. I'm going to try and prove it to you right now, okay? So sit for a minute and think about the thing that is taking up space in your mind this morning. When you came in this morning and you sat down, what, are, what was preoccupying your mind? What are you thinking about? Well, chances are there is a conflict going on in one of your closest relationships right now. And the problem, most likely, is that one of you or both of you are having trouble giving and receiving love toward one another. Am I right? Maybe for some of you, that's the case this morning. And I'll tell you, the thing that is causing this problem between you is something that exists inside of you. And it has to do with your heart. It's something that I am calling this morning your hard-heartedness. This nemesis, this enemy that is preventing you from giving and receiving love is your hard-heartedness and your stubbornness. And this is the thing that we're going to address this morning because we all have this enemy, this nemesis, this stubbornness. And it is not just damaging your relationships. I'm telling you that it is most likely also damaging your relationship with God. It is preventing you from receiving the radical, crazy, abundant love that God has for you. And I'll tell you this morning, if we don't get a grip on this, and if we don't take a long, loving look at this stubbornness, it will keep you from having the marriage you want, the friendships you want, the relationship with your kids that you want. It will keep you from receiving all of the relational richness that God has for you in your life, and it will be a tragedy. Do you know why? Because Jesus defeated it on the cross, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Well, in order to show you this last mystery of what happened on the cross, we need to go all the way back to the book of Exodus to do it. I want to show you a story in the Bible about a guy who had this stubbornness in him, a hard heart, and I want to show you how God remedies that for us, okay? Well, in the book of uh, Exodus, there's a familiar story about how God's people had been in slavery 
for a very long time uh, by the Egyptians. And one day, um, God hears all their crying out, and they're saying, God, come and rescue us, come and save us. And he says, okay. And so he goes to this guy named Moses, and he says, I need you to be a stand-in for me. I kind of need you to be God for me. And take your brother Aaron, and I want you guys to go to Pharaoh, to this guy, and tell him, let my people go. And that if he doesn't, I am going to rain down a series of grand gestures, grand displays of my power upon Egypt. We know them as the plagues. And these will be an incentive to him to let my people go. So Moses complies, and he agrees to go to the sky pharaoh, and this is what happened. Exodus chapter 8. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and they covered the land. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord, take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go. Moses replied, It will be as you say. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, and he would not let God's people go. And you see, in the face of these grand displays of power, these grand gestures of God, it says that Pharaoh did what? He hardened his heart, and he wouldn't give in. And there it is, Crosswinds, right there. That is the nemesis we are talking about this morning. It says that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase for a second, and I want to tell you about Hock Osterwitz Castle in Austria, okay? Hock Osterwitz Castle sits on a massive dolomite rock in the town of Corinthia. Um, it's over 2,000 feet above sea level, and on a clear day, you can see it from about 19 miles away. Um, it is accurately referred to as the Rock Castle, and it is also the castle that inspired Sleeping Beauty's castle. Can you kind of see it there a little bit? But its true claim to fame, other than that, is that according to local legend, it is the only castle in history, in history, that has never been breached. And for the reason for that is because along the path that leads up to the castle, there are 14 of these fortified gates. And each gate is equipped with a different uh, defense mechanism that protects that gate. Like in the one, where is the, where is the gate? Do we have a picture of the next gate? There it is. This one, you can't see it here. But in this gate, there is like this iron spiked wall that just slams down when you enter this gate. And you know what happens, shish kebab, right? Like you kind of get kebabbed in that one. But every gate has its own defense mechanism that protects that gate. But there are 14 of them. And this was the system of fortified gates that makes the castle impenetrable, never breached or conquered in human history except by Sleeping Beauty, okay? And what I want to submit to you this morning is that this is what it looks like to have a hardened heart. This picture is what Pharaoh did to his heart. And here's what I mean. The interesting thing about the Hebrew verb to harden, it literally means to fortify or to strengthen. And what we see Pharaoh doing in this passage 
is that as his authority is challenged, he fortifies his position to not give in to God's grand display, okay? He builds these gates or these walls around his heart. And the Bible tells us that he didn't just do it one time. If you read the book of Exodus, and it's too much to put up on our screens this morning, too much to go over, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart five different times. He fortified his heart against God, and he said, you know what? No way. I am not giving in to you. And the question is, why? Like, why do we see this happening with him so many times? Well, I think this is the standard response we feel when we are challenged or threatened. We go into this kind of self-protection mode. Look at this quote. It says, when you're in self-protection mode, you're always looking for danger or threats. This danger can be real or perceived. If you feel as though people in situations are out to get you, this feeling causes you to wall up and become inaccessible. And you see, each time Pharaoh felt threatened, he walled up. He hawkosterwitzed his heart. And maybe he didn't put up 14 gates, but the Bible tells us that he put up five. Well, what was he protecting? What was he protecting? I'll tell you, he was protecting his pride, his ego as Pharaoh, the need to not be wrong, to save face, to be the smartest guy in the room, the need to protect his pride hardened him from acknowledging the presence of God in his life. And I wonder if sometimes we don't do the same thing. When we feel the need to protect the parts of our heart that are vulnerable or wounded, or when a threat comes at us, we wall it off. Do you ever see kids when they're running um, and one of them falls and they scrape their knee and it's all, just a bloody mess? What is the first response? No matter what, you slap your hand over that wound, right? Even though it's a bloody mess, they don't care. They got to protect the wound. And that's what we do too. The parts of our heart that feel vulnerable or hurt, we slap a wall right up over it and we go into self-protection mode. I was talking to um, a friend recently, and she was telling me about a decision she had made a couple of months ago that was not the best precision, decision for her. And she said, Jody, every time I think about what happened, I can't help but think that I am that thing that I've done. Like, I am my sin. And for her, every time she relived that incident, her guilt, her shame, her unworthiness, it caused her to put up a wall, put up a gate. I was meeting with someone from our church a couple of weeks ago, and she said, there's so much transition going on in my life right now, not just with me, but with my husband and my kids, and I am so afraid to talk to God about it because I'm just afraid he doesn't care. I'm afraid he won't answer. What if he doesn't listen? And so her feeling of fear caused her to wall up her heart. I'm just going to close it right off. And for some of us, you know what? We are just plain stubborn, aren't we? And we are afraid that if we allow ourselves to need God or want God, that it makes us weak people. And so we wall off our hearts to God so that he doesn't get access, and it somehow makes us feel stronger. It makes us feel more self-sufficient. And I think that there are others of us who do have our own pride, right? 
we don't want God speaking into the life choices that we're making right now. We're doing just fine, and I don't need God's voice to come in and ruin things for me right now. And so what do we do? Our pride causes us to wall off our hearts. And the thing is, just like how we wall off our hearts toward God, we wall them off toward other people as well for the exact same reasons that we close God off. It is our standard human response to build walls when we feel threatened or challenged or offended or hurt. You name the, re the feeling, the response is the same, walled fortress around your heart. Now, I know I am taking a lot of time this morning to talk about this hard-heartedness uh, that we are looking at, and I need you to hang with me one more minute because I need to tell you about the craziest thing that I have discovered about hard-heartedness, the craziest thing about our hard hearts. And you want to know what it is? It's the fact that God allows it. God actually allows us to harden our hearts. Look at this. In Exodus 7-3, when God first starts talking to Moses about what he wants Moses and Aaron to do, he tells Moses, I, God, this is God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. He warns Moses. He says, look, no matter what you do or say, this guy's not going to budge. And the crazy thing about this passage is, is it seems to imply is that God is the one who makes Pharaoh prideful and stubborn, that God is the one making Pharaoh this way to the point that even if Pharaoh wanted to listen or do something different, he couldn't. Now, I just want to time out for a second and say, if you are bothered by this at all, you are not alone. You're not alone. Every time I read this, it bugs me so much because I want to know what's going on. Like, I have so many questions about this. Like, is Pharaoh just a pawn in God's big game? Can God really harden someone's heart and then turn around and punish them for it after the fact just because he can? Does God force people to do things because it gives him a better outcome and it makes him look good? Like, what is happening here in this passage? Well, let me tell you, it's not what it sounds like, and it's actually the opposite. Because here's what this means when it says God hardened his heart. It simply means that God gave him over to do what he already wanted to do. God gave him over to his own way to do what he wanted. You see, this hard-heartedness that he had was something that he had always had. There is nothing in the book of Exodus that tells us that Pharaoh ever wanted to be nice to God's people. It said that he had always wanted to hurt them and be mean to them. And ultimately what we see here when we read about God hardening is really God giving Pharaoh over to his own way. God gave Pharaoh what he demanded. And what did he demand? He wanted to be mean. He wanted to be mean. And here's what I want you to see. When it is clear in our hearts what our answer will be, God gives us over to our own desires. He lets us go our own way. We decide to build the walls, and God confirms our decision. He doesn't harden us, but he allows us to make that 
choice, and he gives us over to this form of self-protection that we are used to giving ourselves over to. And I guess if I could say it another way, I'd say it like this. God does not force himself on you. God will never force himself on you. We have agency over ourselves. We get to make our own decisions. And when given a choice, it is part of our human nature to fortify our hearts as a way of protecting ourselves. Because it is not natural for us to leave the most vulnerable parts of ourselves exposed. And so we put the gates up. And God, who is so rich in his mercy, he says, you know what, Jody? Okay. You know what, Crosswinds? Okay. If that is what you want to do, build a way. Build a way. Because the truth about God, again, is that God does not force himself on us, and God does not force himself on you. But, but, he will force you to pay attention to him. God will not force himself on you, but he will force you to pay attention to him. And the way that God forces us to pay attention is through his grand gesture of the cross. The most incredible, over-the-top, mind-blowing, selfless act of love, the most iconic grand gesture ever, ever given to a human being was Jesus' death on the cross. I hate to tell you this, but it is not John Cusack standing outside your window with a boombox. It is not the Orlov Diamond. It is Jesus Christ himself saying to you, let me show you the lengths that I will go to for you. Let me show you the depth of my love for you. It is so much so that I would lay down my life for you. And I will do it if you will pay attention to me. I will do it to get you to pay attention. So what is the grand gesture, this grand gesture of the cross, what does this have to do with your hardened heart? Well, let me show you something that John says about this grand gesture. In 1 John chapter 4, it says this. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Okay, put a pin in that passage for a second and let me tell you a story, okay? Um, during the pandemic, we spent a lot of time in our backyard we were super bored, as most families were. And if you remember when the pandemic started, it was, it was really cold outside. It was almost like in the dead of winter still. Well, we have a pool in our backyard, and we never heat it because we're too cheap to heat it. And so we were trying to figure out some things to do as a family, and we thought, okay, every day, let's have a, a cannonball contest into our pool. Let's do a polar bear plunge into our pool. I didn't say it was a good idea. I just said it was an idea, okay? <laughs> Um, and so we did this. We would go outside every day. We'd line up on our pool, and we would count to three. One, two, three. And guess what happened? No one would jump. There was this <laughs> phenomenon that would take place. We would count to three when you're supposed to jump, and no one would jump. And I would think to myself, you know what? I am not going to be the first idiot to jump into this pool. I am not going first. 
And I think that's because there is something inside of me. There is something inside of all of us that needs to see that someone else is willing to do it first. I need to know that if I jump, somebody else is going to jump with me. I'm not going to be the only one. And so we would stand at the side of the pool, and I would be like, okay, you go first. You go first. You, know, you guys know how it goes. You jump first. Okay, if you jump, I'll jump. And so while my husband and I and my oldest son, we would stand by the side of the pool, and we'd go, okay, you go. Okay, you go. Inevitably, there would be a flash and a splash only to see our youngest son, Sebastian, cannonballing into 50-degree water. And every time we did that polar bear cannonball plunge, he would jump first. And I have to be honest with you, it did something inside of me. Like every time I saw him jump, it then released me to jump. This visual act of seeing him go first released me to follow because I knew that there would be somebody who was in it with me. There was somebody willing to jump with me. And what John is saying in this passage is that Jesus jumped first. Jesus loved first. The only way we can know as human beings what love is is because of the display of love on the cross. Look again at verse 9. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, not that we jumped first, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Crosswinds, Jesus jumped first. He said, I will show you what radical love looks like. And maybe, just maybe, the power of that will, will help you begin to tear down those walls that you have worked so hard to build. And maybe it will release you to follow in my footsteps and love in return. By going to the cross, what Jesus sought to do was melt your hardened, stubborn heart because he knew that if left to your own desires and devices, you would be incapable of choosing love unless you knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was all in first, that he was willing to jump first. And I'll tell you, this is really a, a crazy kind of love that we see in Jesus because he himself knew that even by going to the cross was no guarantee that we would even pay attention. He knew that there would be people who would walk right by and wouldn't give it a second thought. And I just want to ask you, who does that? Who does that? Who lays down their life just hoping that someone will pay attention? Just hoping that someone will take notice? Jesus did. Jesus did. Romans 5 says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Crosswinds, our stubbornness required that Jesus do something outrageous to force us to pay attention. Jesus knew that the only way to melt 
our stubborn, hardened hearts was through this visual, extravagant act of love. So he willingly subjected himself to that agony of the cross. And even after he went through all of it, knowing that there would be people who would reject it and who would walk right by, he says, I still love you. It is so worth it for just the hope that it would bring you to me and me to you. It was worth it if a relationship with you was at the end of all of it. Because you know what he says? He says, I will do anything, absolutely anything, to be with you. I love this quote. It says, all our love is but a reflection of his and a response to it. Left to ourselves, we would not love him. It took his boundless, sacrificial love to break our hearts of stone and bring us to himself. It took his love to melt our hearts and bring us to repentance. And I'll tell you, this act of the cross, it requires a response from us. It requires a response. And our response is in the last line of this quote. Our response is repentance. It's repentance. And and this is a word as a pastor that I have heard so many times. I've heard it explained so many times. I myself have explained it so many times. Um, The most common definition for repentance, it, it usually goes something like, you know, repentance is just being sorry. It's expressing remorse for something, or it's deciding that you don't want to go this direction, but you want to go a different direction and take a different path. But the best and simplest definition of repentance that I heard came to me about two weeks ago, and it turned my world upside down. Very simply, repentance in its purest form is a returning to the truth. It is a continually returning to the truth. And the simple truth that you need to know this morning is the truth that you are loved, Crossway. Repentance is returning to the truth that you are totally, recklessly, unconditionally loved by God. And that is what the cross is meant to show you. This is the truth that God is asking you to return to this morning. We're going to get ready and we're going to enter a time of worship And we are going to take communion together as we wrap up this series. We've been taking communion every week of this series. But before we do that, I just want you to think this morning about what might be hardening your heart. I think it goes without saying that a hard heart is really costly. This guy, Pharaoh, that we were looking at, even after nine national catastrophes um, decimated his people, he still had his hardened heart, and that hard heart ultimately cost him the life of his son. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that our own hard hearts are costing us something as well. And only you know what that is. Maybe it's costing you a relationship right now, or a solution to a problem, or maybe it is really just keeping you from the truth that you are loved by God. I want you to think about what it might be as we watch this video together.
as we get ready to take communion and enter into worship together. What would it look like for you to return to this crazy truth that you are loved by God? Some of you have been following Jesus for a really long time, and every time you hear about God's love or, or, or even see the cross or think about the cross, sometimes that can become stale for us if we've been walking with God for a long time. And sometimes we hear about God's love and we just let that kind of pass us by without really taking it in. But maybe this morning you realize that there are parts of your heart that, that are hardened toward him, that you've been walling off and not giving him access to. And this morning, it is the time for you to start lowering the gate. Start letting him melt that hardness around your heart. What would it look like for you to return to that truth that you are loved by God? And still, others of you, you're like, me and God, we're good. We are good. But maybe you've got hard-heartedness towards somebody else in your life. You are walled off from that person. But being reminded this morning that God put forth such a grand gesture in the cross, what would it look like for you to extend a grand gesture to someone else? who you have walled your heart off to, how would it soften them in responding to you? I want you to take just a minute, just like 60 seconds to think about how God might want you to respond this morning. You can sit and pray quietly, talk to God about how he might want you to respond, and then I'll give you more instructions. So take just one minute. and approach the tables and for some of you you've never really thought about what this grand gesture means for you maybe this is the first time that you have heard that there is a God who loves you that much and you want to know more when you approach the tables we've got these these little cards with a QR code on them and I encourage you invite you just to grab one of those scan it Maybe when you get home and we'll send you an email about what it looks like to live into this truth that Jesus died for you. Well, Crosswinds, the communion tables are before you. And when you are ready, you can come and you can come up and take the elements and you can bring them back to your seat. Take the elements at your seat and then we are going to enter into worship together. And when you come to the tables, remember this. Remember that when you pick up the bread, this is Christ's body broken for you. When you pick up the cup, remember that it is Christ's blood that was shed for you. And when you take these elements, return 
to the truth that you are loved. We invite you to come.
sing the last verse one more time. And we're the whole realm of nature mine. Let me hear you sing that word often. That word and far too song. Chorus one more time, just the voices. so glad you joined us today. We're so happy you joined us. I pray you have an incredible week, and we'll see you back here next weekend for our Easter celebration. 9 and 11, we're going to celebrate. We're going to sing loud. I hope you can join us. If you need prayer, we got our elders and our staff down here at the front ready to pray with you. Otherwise than that, have a great day. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next weekend. Bye.